Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11. And if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, you're going to want to turn or tap your way there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 has got some interesting stuff in it. And I want you to see that what I'm saying is coming from Scripture. I also want to affirm that we are 100% behind Scripture. Let me just say that coming out of the gate. Uh, If you have a copy of the Scriptures, turn there physically. If you have them digitally, totally cool. Tap your way there. If not, don't panic. We'll have the words on the screen. And we'd love to give you a copy of the Bible in a modern English translation. As we uh, get into some stuff uh, that is, is helpful because you don't probably already agree with it. <laughs> so here, let's get into it. It says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. Paul, who's been writing, you know, 10 chapters to this, this church that he helped to start in a place called Corinth in Greece 2,000 years ago, says, Now, I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. If you've been with us through this series, the word commend is generally not something Paul is saying to the Corinthians. There's there's been a lot that they have needed to change, to repent of. And here he's telling them something positive. It's kind of exciting for a minute. Uh, And then it's the conjunction junction you don't want because he goes, but, (laughs) verse 3, but I want you to understand. So so whatever they were doing, there is actually a problem. And it's a problem that he kind of covers in two different places on the way that the church worships. The way that their Sunday morning, and, and I would think they did it on Sunday morning, maybe they didn't. But when they did their whole group gathering, they had two major issues that were also taking place along with all the other stuff that he's been addressing. The way that they dressed and the way that they did the Lord's Supper. We're going to actually take the Lord's Supper this morning. And you're already dressed. I mean, you're not going to change that, so, you know, whatever. But but we're going to address both of these things because... What he's getting at, what he's talking about, is crucial. And where it it feels like it might sting the most or it feels the most awkward is where it's the most crucial. So stay with me. Here we go. Starting verse 3, he says, But, commend you, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Whoa! What? (laughs) As you look around this morning, you think to yourself, Well, Brian Coyle's got a hood up. None of the ladies are wearing hats. Some of the guys are. Do they actually believe the Bible, or are they just kind of picking and choosing what they like out of this thing? Worthy question. Let's find out. As he's talking, he's talking as the Apostle Paul to a church in the first century in Greece. That means that it was set in a cultural context. It looked somewhat different from our cultural context context. Cultural context shift. Our current cultural context doesn't look the same as it would have in the 1950s. Our current cultural context does not match the African church plant that meets here in the afternoon. 
When I, uh, Mumbano found out that I preached in a tie two weeks ago at an event thing I was at, he thought it was hilarious because he's been sitting here for four years wondering how I could get away preaching the gospel without looking a little lot less like a you know, crazy person. Like, like, how can I wear such schlubby clothing and be allowed to stand before you? So he thought it was hilarious that I finally had to preach in a coat and tie. We have a totally different cultural context for what's appropriate from this morning to this afternoon much less this morning to Greece 2,000 years ago. So let's understand what the cultural context was for Greece 2,000 years ago. Uh, a New Testament scholar named David Pryor says, in first century Greece, dress for men and women was apparently very similar except for the woman's head covering, and the Greek word called kaluma or veil. So in that time, the way that women dressed as women and the way that men dressed as men was actually somewhat similar with one key distinction, which was that the women would wear a, a veil, a, a headdress, some sort of a covering for their hair, except for a couple of cases. Women who didn't have their heads covered, and this is where we get this idea of him saying as, uh, as if her head were shaven, the only people who didn't have their head covered were very specific groups. They were ones who were prostitutes or mistresses of the very wealthy in the city, sort of kept prostitutes. They would wear their hair out for everybody to see as they walked around. The second group were the sacred prostitutes. In some of the idol worship that took place at the time, they would have these sort of groups of men and women who were prostitutes. And part of your service to or worship of that God, like or goddess like Aphrodite, would be to engage with those cult prostitutes. The cult prostitutes, that was another category of women that wouldn't cover their hair as they walked around. The third category of women that wouldn't cover their hair as they walked around were slaves, and they often had their heads shaven. So what he's describing here is this thing that was starting to take place in the Corinthians worship where they would walk around and culturally they would obey the sort of norms that were there in Corinth. But when they walked into church, they would somehow take off that covering as women. And Paul's making a point here. He's saying that something essential is starting to take place. You're, you're losing something that is actually really necessary here. The principle that he is speaking about is that there, there is a shame that's taking place and there's an alarm bell going off in Paul's mind because if an outsider were to come into their worship services, that person would have a lot of confusion about what he was seeing. He wouldn't understand why the women and the men really looked alike and why the women uncovered their hair in the way of a prostitute. They would lose something of what they meant when they talked about who Jesus was. They would lose something of what they meant when they described the differences or the creation-given differences between what a man is and what a woman is. Great pastor, a guy named John Piper, talking about this. He said, how do women and men relate to each other as they minister? The answer is given in that. The answer that is given in, in this chapter is that. Women should employ appropriate cultural means of expressing their acknowledgement of man's headship, which is rooted in creation and taught by nature. Here's where he's getting that. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image of glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for 
man. What Paul's doing is describing a difference between what it is to be a guy and what it is to be a girl that isn't a product of the brokenness of the world, but a product of God's good creation. And if that starts to rub you the wrong way, then you are a perfect candidate for what the Bible is trying to teach you this morning, which is about gender and roles, but much more about God's prerogative as God to make you how he will, to assign to you who you are, and to tell you, whatever the culture or your heart might say, that his way is good. It's good. It's good. He says he made Adam from the dirt and he made Eve from Adam. There's a specific distinction in the way that they were created. And that distinction shows that they are both image bearers of equal value before God and that they are not the same when it comes to role or authority. They're the same when it comes to value before God. But they are not the same when it comes to authority or role, as apparently are God the Father and Jesus the Son. Not only does Paul ground this argument in creation, he grounds this argument before creation in the Trinity itself. Here's what he says in verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Listen, if you have a problem with the idea of submission and headship in the, role, in the relationship of a marriage between a man and a woman, understand that what you're rebelling against is something that the man has before Christ and something that Christ has before God the Father. So much so that if we start to twist it on our end in the way that we relate to one another, we don't just twist our relationships. We actually start to twist our theology of who God is as he's revealed himself in his word. Wayne Grudem is this super genius that just takes a lot of Bible and puts it into this thing called a systematic theology. I gifted one to Mitchell. Poor guy. I'm sure he took it very kindly and just set it somewhere because it's a brick. But it's so helpful because there's just everything in it. And anyway, he talks about this when he says that Christ has always been subordinate, in the fa- uh, subordinate to the Father. So the head of Christ is God. That Christ has always, we're talking Trinity here, eternity past, been subordinate to the Father becomes contested against all Christian orthodoxy for over a millennia. Robert Leatham categorizes the tendency to fight Christ's subordinate role, not being, uh, not being, but role. So we understand that Christ is God as God the Father is God. So we're not saying that Christ is somehow less than in his importance, just like we're saying women and men are not somehow less than in their importance. But, so not being, but role, Christ is subordinate, has a subordinate role to the Father in the Trinity. So not in being, but role, in the Trinity as the outworking of an evangelical feminist claim that a subordinate role necessarily implies lesser importance or lesser personhood. If you didn't follow that, he said that there is a movement within the world today that says if you say that one person is the leader and the other is the follower, you necessarily say that one is more important and one is less important. That can't be true, so let's break everything else to fit what we know can't be true. Here's what that looks like. 
then we are not only equal as persons, we are equal in role. And where we find the places in Scripture that say that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are not equal in role, though they are equal in person, well, then we're going to have to break that and try to make that in our image. That's a problem. That's a problem. No, men have to look like and be men. Women have to look like and be women. If not, we submit ourselves to the same destructive forces that have been blowing through humanity for millennia. Not just in the brand that we know, the sort of cultural uh, gender dysphoria that we know for the last 30 years. There's something about the fact that the ancient Greeks and the modern Americans have this same view, this same pull. What do we have in common that would make us have this same pull away from God's design on what it is to be a man and a woman? Well, some destructive force. Verses 13 to 16, judge for yourselves. Is this a proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. He's saying that it was very clear to the Corinthians what they considered a man to look like and a woman to look like. And in their culture, men did not have long hair. Women did have long hair, and they had it covered if they were a wife or a daughter until such time as they became a prostitute or unfortunately a slave. So if men began to look like women, dress like cultural categories for women, if I started to wear lipstick and big hoopy earrings, it's different than if I just grew my hair long. If I grew my hair long, you'd be like, oh, it's a Viking look, you know, whatever. If I had lipstick and hoops, though, you'd go, hmm, crazy weekend? You know, what's up? Well, how, how did things go for you yesterday? Why is this your look? You would not have a category for that that said he is a man and he has lipstick and hoop earrings, right? That's what they were struggling with. And so, again, Piper, did nature teach the Corinthians that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Yes, it did. Nature did because the God-designed healthy male revolts against clothing himself in symbols of femininity, just as the God-designed healthy female soul revolts against presenting herself as a man. That revolt from nature is a God-given teacher. Now, before we kind of wrap up why that's so good, let's move into the second thing, because I think both of these things together are teaching the same lesson when it comes to worship. He starts to transition now into the Lord's Supper, and he does it in my mind, it seems kind of stark, but when you start putting these lessons side by side, you start to see a lot of similarity. He says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's referencing in the Gospels, in the story of Jesus' ministry, that the night before he went to the cross, so, you know, if you don't know anything about Christianity, we say Jesus is God, that he was God became man, he was a perfect man, he lived a perfect life, and then died the death that a sinner should die in order that sinners like us can give our sin to him and receive his righteousness. That's what happened on the cross. That's why you see a lot of people wearing crosses within kind of Christian culture. Because we remember that night, that, that time, it was a day, when Jesus was killed, that cross 
as the place where it became possible for us to be forgiven by a holy God and brought back into relationship with him. Well, the night before he goes to the cross, he's betrayed. And just before that, he has this upper room discourse, this upper room time with his disciples, the ones that he was very close to. And on that night, which was the Passover, and there's a million billion things we could talk about here, he takes the Passover meal and he very specifically repurposes it to show exactly how what happened under Moses and what's about to happen under Christ are pointing to the only way for us to be forgiven before a holy God. And he gives it to us as a way that we, as believers, will take bread and, and juice for us, wine. And the first Sunday of every, week, uh, every month is when Hope Church does this. Every first Sunday, we take the Lord's Supper in order to remember that incredible thing that he did for us. We were remembering, again, what Jesus did. And that's what he's saying there. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He was showing them what happens. When you do this and when you do it rightly, you bring yourself before the Lord, you remember what he's done for you in Christ, and then you remember it at an affection level, at a physical, at a, a sensory level, as you take bread and wine and, and remember his body and his blood that were shed for you in order to cover you, to cover you like a wedding garment. It says in Isaiah 1, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Scarlet! They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There was a beautiful, perfect gospel picture that should have been happening regularly within this Corinthian church, and yet they had broken it. Here's how. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One guy goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Do you see what was happening? This church that was all about equality such that the ladies were taking off their headdresses was so about inequality where it actually did have equality in personhood that they, they broke the Lord's Supper up economically. If you had money, you had a great time. You bring what you brought, you would enjoy it, you pop that cork and laugh while you drank it, and if you didn't have money, you'd show up with nothing because you didn't have anything, and you'd leave with nothing. You didn't get anything. What was supposed to be the perfect picture of Christ's sacrifice for those that had nothing but rebellion before a holy God became a picture of those who have have more, those who don't have less. What should have been equality before God became inequality. So he says in verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Not just the divisions of I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ, but the division that said, I'm better than you, and I'm better than you because I have better wine than you do. Because I can bring some nice bread to our meetings, and you just, you don't have anything. These people were in the same room because before Christ the gospel was for the wealthy purple merchants and the slaves recently freed. 
You, you have God giving his gospel to every human under the sun. And yet, when you show up at the Corinthian church and you see where they do the Lord's Supper, when this, this beautiful picture of God's gospel is put forward, instead of seeing the gospel, they see a ruined witness. Poor members getting kicked in the face. And the judgment of God that fell on the rich members who did it. It says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, anybody who takes the Lord's Supper without understanding what's really happening here, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Do you understand God was killing people because they weren't doing the Lord's Supper right? Why? Because it matters so much? Do we need to let this ferment? Do we need to leave it out for a couple of months and then come back to the Lord's Supper because it's juice, not wine? What they did was take a symbol of the gospel and they inverted it and made it a symbol of paganism. A symbol of do more, have more, be better. Do more but have less, be less. And God decided to just kill some of these people for the way they were doing it. When we take the Lord's Supper, we come to this table and we start with dust and ashes because the gospel starts with a holy God and sinful people. That means that you and I, no matter how much money is in our bank account, have no money before a holy God. We are bankrupt before a holy God. If they understood the gospel, they would understand that having a little better bread or a little more wine made them nothing more before a holy God. So we come, we repent. We repent by remembering our sin before a holy God. And as we remember it, we make ourselves low. Jesus tells the story of how we're supposed to approach the Father, and he told it by the tax collector and the Pharisee. The tax collector had nothing when it came to righteousness. The Pharisee had everything when it came to righteousness. He did everything perfectly. He was rich in his righteousness. And yet, when they stood before God to pray, the Pharisee didn't even, or the, the tax collector didn't even look up. He beat his breast as he talked about how sinful he was before a holy God, and he couldn't even look up. It was the Pharisee who looked down on the tax collector and prayed to God, but instead of looking at God, was really looking at himself in comparison with the tax collector and said, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like this tax collector. Do you see the difference? If they really understood the gospel, they would have understood their equality before a holy God. Their equality as people before a God who is creator. And he can make them men, he can make them women, but he can also make them all his There's something that we miss when we make worship about us. In the course of this series where we're talking about the church, we've been trying to slowly make the transition from church is about you. We're here to make you have a great time, teach you things that will tickle your ears and sing you songs that will make you feel great, give you great kids ministry and show you how to minister to your kids better. There's a way you can view church that sounds like let us pet your ego and allow you to go and be your sort of own world. And we're trying to change that totally and say, no, 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 no. The people that are here are going to be messy. When they get in your life, they're going to overstep the bound sometimes. They're going to say things that are rude sometimes. They're going to be a little much. But in doing so, you're going to serve them, and they're going to serve you. 
I'm thrilled to be a part of Hope Church. I was texting Rachel a long text this morning about how nice it was to be ministered to by the people who are here. You're wonderful. And your people. Make that shift from church is about me. I come when I want. I go when it's best for me. To church is kind of about them. I'm so thrilled to receive from and give to the other people who are here such that until the Lord visibly, verbally calls me away, I'm going to bleed for these people. Well, let's go a little further because I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's not just saying don't be selfish, think about people. He's actually saying don't think about the people. Think about the Lord. The worship that's taking place this morning is not directed by the other people. Yeah, I mean, we direct it. But we direct it under the instruction we have from God. This, this morning, this service isn't about you. It's not about us. It is about Him. So He gets to decide what it looks like. He gets to decide what it looks like, and that's a good thing. If He does, then He saves something essential for us, And he saves something essential for the culture. Let's see it. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. It's going to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Light and salt. And he starts with salt, so let's start with salt. Salt as a preservative. Salt adds savor to food. You can tell when food's a little bland. People have been stingy with the salt, and you can tell when people have oversalted, but you can tell when they've salted and the savor of the food erupts in your mouth. It's a good thing. But salt is also used to preserve. You would rub things down in salt, and salt would kill some of the bacteria that was there to rot out what you were going to eat. We have been given by God the role of preserving what God has given. In this place, if nowhere else in culture, we should see a perfect, as much as perfectly as possible, preservation of what God has given to his people, of what God's intended for us to be. Glory. Glory that says you are not just a person. You don't just have the glory of being a person. You also have the glory of being a man if you're a man. You're not just a a person if you're a woman. You have the glory of being a person and the glory of being a woman, that there is a positive real category for what a man is and what a woman is. And if you'll understand that, then you receive not only what everybody has in our equality as image bearers, you also have the positive, real thing of being a man, being a woman. And if this stuff sounds crazy as you read it, do you understand that that's because you've already started to decay just like the culture? You're starting to lose your saltiness. you got to come back here. We don't want to get thrown out and trampled. We want to be salty. We want to go to the Lord and say, I don't care if it seems weird. Teach me what a man is and what a woman is. And if it's just my little family, let me be a place where we start to shine some of the goodness of those distinctions. The church has to be a place that 
preserves what it is to be uniquely male and female. It's got to be. And yet the church also has to preserve the equality that God has given us. Equality in personhood, which is mandated, is taught by what Paul says. He also says, hey, by the way, men that, that were made first, you now come from women. So, so we're not going to use this to lord over people, but God has given us this idea of male, female, headship, submission. So we're going to model that. Yet, we also have equality before a holy God. We have equality in personhood. That's what the Lord's Supper thing is teaching, about how every human is human. And I love this quote from the uh, Chronicles of Narnia. So forgive me. But he says, Aslan the lion. It's lion Jesus. You've got to read them to understand here. But he, he says, You come of the Lord Adam and of the Lady Eve. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. It's a good word. That's what Jesus is saying about us. If we understand the equality that he teaches us in the gospel, then we as the church can preserve what's God's given. A, a preserve equality, an idea of human equality that is so enshrined in Western culture but has no basis apart from Christianity. It's going to crumble. Unless somebody gets real salty about it. If somebody doesn't get real salty about it, the, the victories that Christianity has had in this topic are going to go away. The victories like equality because of race. Race-based slavery is wrong. And Christians were the ones who had the, the, the moral certainty to assert it. Ask Martin Luther King Jr. Read his writings. Ask him. You can't say someone is less than another because of race. They're still of the human race. That is a biblical concept. You can't say that someone is less in personhood or less in equality because of their gender. It was the Christians who impacted the Roman and Greek culture and said it was immoral for a man of higher social standing to have sex with women of lower social standing if they weren't willing, if they weren't married. Because at the time, it was totally fine. You were a guy of higher social standing. You were free to have sex with any woman of lower social standing that you wanted to, whether she was into it or not. It was Christianity that said, no, women are women. They're not things. It was Christianity who said, actually, that the testimony of the risen Christ was founded first on the testimony of women, which wasn't even allowed in Roman court because you're so hysterical. Sorry, ladies, but the Romans didn't even accept your testimony. The Christians did. Why? Because we're equal before God as image bearers. It was the Christians that said, you can't say someone is less than because of their capacity. Go read what was happening with eugenics at the beginning of the last century. It's horrifying. And it was Christians who said somebody with Down syndrome is just as much a human as somebody with a high IQ. Praise God for that. Who's going who's gonna to preserve that if we don't stay salty? We're salt and we're light. Paul is talking about the Lord allowing sickness to come and even death to come for those who didn't take the Lord's Supper rightly. That means that he had eyes to see God. He had light to see light. And when he saw God, he didn't see Santa. He saw God on his throne with a sword, holy judge of all. 
He recognized that God has the right to be God. And that if we cross him, there are consequences. And he saw what the Holy Spirit was teaching us through the Lord's Supper. That he doesn't just hold a sword. That he's not just a just God. He's also a merciful Father. He saw that what Jesus came to do was to bring you not just the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1-7, but the real knowledge of the Lord, which may start with fear but goes so quickly to the love of a giving, loving, self-sacrificial Father. Okay, so what do we do with this? Well, culturally, look like a man or a woman. Let's read about it. Let's think together. Look to the older women in the church and ask, what does it mean to be a woman? Help me. Look to the older men in the church and say, what does it look to be a man? It's not MMA and steroids. What is it? What makes a man a man? When it comes to the Lord's Supper, which we're about to take, don't take it in an unworthy manner. If you're not a Christian, not a Christian yet, great. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for being with us. Don't take the Lord's Supper. But if you have received the grace and the mercy that comes from a holy God telling you you're a sinner, and the only way that you can be saved is by faith in Jesus and what he's done for you, this sacrifice that we're remembering for you, whether or not you're a member of Hope Church, then you're welcome to come. But not an unworthy way. You've got to take your time. You've got to remember what he's done. You've got to start the gospel with the fear part with sinner before a holy God, and you got to tell him your sin. And then go to the end part, where you remember the love that he's shown you by the sacrifice of Christ. And brothers and sisters, start seeing this as not your thing or our thing, but his thing, that we might be salt and light for a world in desperate need. Lord and Heavenly Father, as the band comes back up and we kind of get ready for this time of the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would give us the grace to prepare our hearts well for it. Father, that the things that you tell us in, our, in your word, where that, where that word strikes back against our expectation, those are the places we need to press in, not close our eyes and kind of duck and just sort of get through them. We need to press in because it's in those places where we're going to see who you are and who we aren't. We're going to see a God who has made us in his image rather than a God we're trying to make in our image. Father, I pray that you would give the church the, the ability to speak to one another. That there would be those that would ask me, ask David, ask older men, older women in the church about these things. That the beauty that the culture is totally blind to becomes visible. That the salt becomes salty and that your church becomes a real distinct presence in this world. Okay, what we're going to do now is go to a time of the Lord's Supper. The band is going to play and as they play, I want you to do that, that repentance thing. Get your heart ready. When you're ready, come get a piece of bread and one of the cups. Go sit down and hold on to it, and then I'll instruct you. We'll, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. We pray these things, Lord, in your Son's holy name. Amen.